Welcome to the Combat Learning Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Peacock. If you aren't already, please go to combatlearning.com slash newsletter to get my intro to motor learning for martial arts PDF so you can get up to speed on the powerful concepts we're discussing in the show. Plus, you'll never miss an episode. That's combatlearning.com slash newsletter. Today, I'm joined by Sanko Lewis, a fifth Don in ITF Taekwondo and a martial arts academic residing in South Korea. In this episode, Sanko walks us through different views of what martial arts are and how they conceive of authority in regard to determining effectiveness and training. He divides these views into three major categories. The first is pre-modern or pre-rational, which is the ancient view of martial arts. Then there's the modern or rational, which encompasses systems founded in the 19th and early 20th centuries, usually from a modernist pedagogical pedagogical philosophy standpoint. And finally, there's the transmodern or transrational, which is a view of martial arts that seeks to use rational ideas about training while appreciating pre-modern traditions. I think many would classify me as someone who advocates a modern or rational approach to training, but I have a lot of criticism of it. While I do advocate advocate for more scientifically based training approaches, I do not support a philosophically modernist pedagogy. At any rate, this is a fascinating discussion, and many martial arts that we think of as traditional actually have a foot in more than one of these categories. So if you're excited to jump in, hit the subscribe button on your podcatcher and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Combat Learning Podcast. I am really, really excited to have you on. Um, for those Thank of you who you don't gosh. know, this is uh, actually, I'm going to let you pronounce your name. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> so it's pronounced Sonku. That's my first name. And Lewis, Sonku Lewis. Awesome. Cool. Um, and if you, if you don't mind, uh, can you let the audience know your background in martial arts? And you actually, you have, you're an academic too working yeah. in, in adjacent to martial arts. So if you could... Uh, adjacent and connected to martial arts, yeah. Um, while I started martial arts informally as a child, my father did some hybrid judo things. So it was a mixture of karate and judo and stuff. So I learned occasionally from him, mostly just um, rolling and break falling and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but then later, as a teenager, I formally started Taekwondo. My brother and I actually wanted to do Kung Fu because we were watching all these Chinese movies. Mm-hmm. Um, but in the area where we lived, there wasn't any of that. And we, had, we didn't really know what Taekwondo was. And by any case, we joined the club. We loved it. It was a kind of um, love at first practice. <laughs> and I've been doing Taekwondo now. Um, ITF Taekwondo specifically at the time it wasn't it was a, a more traditional Mudokwan type thing mm-hmm. um, but I converted to ITF for my second round and I've been doing that for over over 25 years I'm not sure it might be 26 or 27 years and then so I'm a fifth time in ITF Taekwondo I also do Hapkido. I came to Korea um, around 13 years ago, a little bit more than that. Um, I came and left and came back. And mm-hmm. I've been in Korea now um, for 13 years at the 
Um, and when I came to Korea, I took up Hapkido. So I've been doing Hapkido for over a decade. That might be 15 years now. Mm -hmm. I'm also a fifth dan in Hapkido. And I practiced formally in Taekyeon. Taekyeon is kind of a traditional folk Korean martial art. And apart from that, I've been training, um, cross training, let's call it cross training in other things like, um, BJJ and yeah, various other things. But so I would claim myself to be a Korean martial artist because mm -hmm. it's in Taekwondo, Hapkido and Taekyeon where most of my formal experience lies. And then I came to Korea the second time to work at the university. I got a job offer and I teach literature, um, specifically um, poetry mostly. And while I was here, I thought, well, it's about time I get my PhD. So at first it was going to be within this field of literature studies. But then I thought, you know, I can study literature anywhere in the world, but I'm in Korea. I, maybe I should do something that's uniquely to Korea, something that I, yeah, to, to make best use of this opportunity being an expat. Mm -hmm. And that's when a friend of mine um, told me, you know, you can study Taekwondo in Korea and there are some programs where it's not fully in English, but they allow you um, some English, there's some English classes and mm -hmm. basically there's a way for me who is not a fluent speaker to be able to do this. So I applied for a graduate program, which was in a physical, it's in the physical education department at Gyeonggi University. Now, Gyeonggi University is the, one of the foremost Taekwondo universities here in South Korea. It was the first university to offer Taekwondo as a, a subject. Uh, so I enrolled into that program and I studied um, under my, my advisor was the philosophy professor within the Taekwondo department in the physical education faculty. So it's basically my degree is in physical education with specialization in um, Taekwondo studies with a research focus in martial arts philosophy. So mm -hmm. I think of myself as a martial arts philosopher um, more than just a general physical education expert. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been doing all kinds of research in Taekwondo and philosophy, pedagogy, um, body culture studies. One of my recent um, publications was a chapter about Korean body culture, kind mm -hmm. of the connections between um, Korean traditional dance, Korean traditional martial arts like Taekyeon and so on. So it's a little bit all over the place. And then yeah. I do other things. I do art. You can see some of my, my artworks behind me yeah. here yeah. in Korea. And I, I also have a degree in writing. So I'm, I do a lot of things, but martial arts wise, that's, that's a short summary of what I've been doing. Awesome. Yeah. So, ped well, writing is definitely at my alley too, but ped pedagogy is definitely, that's 
probably if you had to boil down everything we talk about on the combat learning podcast, it, it mm-hmm. is, it's, it's mostly about uh, uh, how we approach uh, coaching, how we approach teaching and training. Um, and that's, that's what pedagogy is all, all about. You, you um, published an article last year that is um, that I found really interesting. And it is uh, every time I see something that goes a step above discussing technique or discussing applications, something that is more broad, um, more, I'm, I'm reaching for the words, but something that is more that governs how we approach training rather than just the training itself. That's something that's, that always catches my eye. So you, you study, or you uh, published a, an article called uh, Pre-Rational, Rational, uh, and Trans-Rational Views of Martial Arts. So I, I was wondering for, um, for the audience's sake that if you could go through and you could uh, describe for us what it means to take um, any of those, those three positions as an approach to martial mm. arts. Yeah, so when we say an article here, it's not an academic article yet. So it was posted on my uh, martial arts blog. Mm -hmm. And my blog is basically kind of my workshop for playing with ideas. Mm, And the goal of this essay is to present it at an academic taekwondo conference later Mm -hmm. this year here in Korea, and then hopefully um, build it into an article to be published academically. So the article itself at the moment is not academically rigorous. There's there's not too many citations and it hasn't been peer-reviewed. So it's just a a philosophical understanding of um, martial arts, of categorizing martial arts. Now there's many ways of categorizing martial arts you can um, do it historically or east versus west geographically or whatever functional martial arts versus traditional martial arts so there's many ways to do it but this is just one other way to categorize martial arts and also to see a type of um, evolution Mm -hmm. so the article works kind of on a hegelian dialectical principle where you have a you start somewhere, the thesis, and then there's some kind of rebellion against this thesis, a subversion, which we call the antithesis. And then um, these two work against each other until you get something beyond that, that the synthesis. And the synthesis is not simply a combination of the two, but it's a transcendence of both. And so I use the terms um, pre- pre-rational, mm-hmm. rational, and trans-rational. Um, but I also use different terms, pre-modern, modern, and trans-modern. So I like the idea of talking about pre-modern and modern rather than rational, but the, the terms came from the philosopher Ken Wilber, and he wrote an article about, about this thing he calls the pre-trans fallacy. So the idea of rational, um, pre-rational, rational, and trans-rational kind of comes from his work. Mm. But I'm weary of using rational versus kind of pre-rational because people might then think, oh, I'm speaking about 
uh, martial arts that are simply not rational. And that, that's a little bit of an oversimplification of what pre-rational martial arts are. Yeah. Um, yeah. But let's work through these terms and I will use um, pre-rational or pre-modern kind of synonymously, mm-hmm. rational and uh, modern synonymously and transrational or transmodern synonymously. But let's start with this idea of pre-modern martial arts. Basically, when I say pre-modern, um, most of your listeners would, can think of what we call traditional martial arts. Now, there are some traditional martial arts that are not really very old. Taekwondo, ITF Taekwondo, for example, could be defined as a um, traditional martial art, but it's only, what, 60 years old? So that doesn't really qualify as what we would typically think of as a pre-modern martial art. And with the term modern, I mean kind of late 19th century, 20th century martial arts. The martial arts that developed over the last 100 years, we would typically define as a a modern martial art, a martial art that developed with Newtonian physics as its underlying philosophy of power generation. That's kind of a modern martial art. So going back to pre-modern martial arts well these are usually martial arts that have a very long um his history claim there's often some type of mythical origin a legendary founder so now if you think of most traditional chinese martial arts for example um they all have this legendary founder from thousands of years ago um so that's an example one characteristic of a pre-modern martial art. If you compare that to a modern martial art, these usually have a very short history, a few decades maybe. Um, They usually developed in the 20th century, culminating in MMA in the 21st century. Really the first modern martial art would probably be Judo um, by Kano, who founded it in, what, 1882. So another characteristic of a pre-modern martial art is this emphasis on where thus knowledge and authority comes from. In a pre-modern martial art, the knowledge and comes from this long lineage and It's basically an accumulation of wisdom, like a type of oral tradition from master to disciple or from, um, we can think of it as a type of artisan and apprenticeship relationship. Mm -hmm. And the knowledge is from one generation to the next in this unbroken line. And the authority is also based on this lineage. So how do you know if somebody um, is really qualified to teach or if they are teaching authentic, whatever it might be, Tai Chi Chuan or whatever? Well, you know, because you know who their instructor is and who that person's instructor was, and it can go back many generations. Whereas with modern martial arts, the 
the lineage is not so important for the transmission of knowledge. You can have several coaches, you probably train with several coaches, um, and things are documented. And now in the age of internet, they are documented as videos. You can learn techniques from YouTube. You actually don't even need to have an instructor to gain knowledge. Of course, having a good coach will definitely help to acquire proper skills. But um, the, that the coach is not so important in the sense of this master-disciple relationship. And your authority as a martial artist, your credentials is not from the coach, from the master, it is really from an organization, some type of national governing body or uh, international governing body. In the case of um, Cookie Taekwondo, it will be the Cookie One. The Cookie mm -hmm. One issue certificates and their logo, their stamp of authority is the thing that accredits um, your credentials. Mm -hmm. So that's uh, another thing. By the way, if you want to jump in anywhere, feel free to do so. Um, otherwise, I'll just continue down these characteristics. Oh, yeah, yeah. Go, go ahead and continue. I'm, I'm having okay. fun. Um, then another thing about these traditional uh, pre-modern martial arts is the idea of a type of secret knowledge or secret techniques. And these techniques are... The, the curriculum as a whole is invested in the person, the grandmaster, and this grandmaster's inner circle. There might be maybe some secret manuals, and um, if you have ever seen, people that enjoy kung fu movies will immediately recognize these motifs of yep. secret manuals or secret knowledge mm -hmm. and you have to go learn from a from an instructor hidden in some um, mountain a hermit mm -hmm. martial arts you know those very stereotypical ideas but these ideas are very prevalent in many martial arts many traditional martial arts and in that sense it is kind of esoteric you you need to be initiated into the martial art and into different levels of it. And I'm not meant, I'm not saying belts here. It's, it's the, the invention of belts is kind of a, a new thing. It's more uh, levels of inner circleness. How close are you to the, the head instructor, to the, the mm -hmm. great master? And, Whereas in modern martial arts, there aren't really any secrets. Um, it is techniques are based on physics, biomechanics, and um, there are books published about it. There are videos about it. Anyone can buy the secrets or you can go on YouTube and find the secrets. There are no secrets in Taekwondo, for instance. I mean, there's encyclopedias. I don't know if you can see it. I have several Taekwondo books up there. Mm -hmm. um, all the secrets are there. It's been democratized. So there are no secrets. Um, learning from a grandmaster in Taekwondo 
doesn't mean that you learn secret techniques that your own instructor cannot teach to you. It's, it just means that this person has much more experience and hopefully through times and through years of teaching has accumulated better coaching or teaching practices. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that is a important thing. And also these traditional martial arts don't really have a very clear pedagogy. There's an oral tradition. There may be some manuals, but even the manuals are often quite cryptic. Mm -hmm. And maybe the knowledge is embedded in forms, patterns, or uh, as we say in Taekwondo, it might be Pumse, Hyung, or Til, or Kata. So the knowledge is embedded in these kinetic forms, which is a type of like an oral tradition. It's just a kinetic tradition. Whereas in modern martial arts, there's usually a very clear curriculum. Um, we can question the effectiveness of the curriculum, if it's a good curriculum or not, but that doesn't matter. The curriculum is there. Usually students get some type of manual to tell them exactly what they need to learn at different stages. Um, or if it's a, a sport-based martial art, the curriculum is based around the rule set for your level and um, or you learn through competition. To, to decide what rank you are. For instance, in BJJ, you progress um, depending on your ability to win over people of similar or better um, level than yourself. So again, the, the curriculum is kind of, it's open. It, there's, it's not secret, it's there. Um, and you, you kind of know where you are in the strata of mm -hmm. technical ability. And part of it, modern martial arts often use belts. Invention again by, uh, from judo that was inherited by many other martial arts. So the belt system is kind of useful in that sense. There are traditional martial arts who also adopted the belt system, but that is a, a modern kind of thing. Something else is that the real pre-modern martial arts didn't have, well, they didn't have belts and they didn't have clear ranks. Mm -hmm. You had uh, the master and you had the disciple. So, and then you had seniors based on how long they trained before you, or you are senior to those that came in after you. So it's, it's more a, a very, natural way of structuring um, rank through this master-disciple relationship and mm -hmm. senior-junior relationship. And often when we talk about um, these types of pre-modern traditional martial arts, we are often referring to East Asian martial arts that also have a confusion um, ethic to them. So Confucius believed that the age is a very important thing. Mm -hmm. um, if somebody is older than you, you automatically need to show respect to them. And the people that are senior to you, they have an obligation or a responsibility to those younger 
to themselves. Mm-hmm. So there, there's a type of so a type of familiarity, and I mean this in a how can I say in a filial sense, a family mm-hmm. unit. The martial art martial art system, the group is a type of family unit with the instructor being a a, a parental figure and the students being children um, who are guided by the the master and the siblings having to respect their older siblings and the older siblings having to take care of the younger ones. Mm -hmm. Whereas with uh, modern martial arts, we the, there's a system a systematized pedagogy, which means there's a systematized ranking system. And as I mentioned earlier, the, the rank is accredited by an organization of some sort. Now, something else, another characteristic of pre-modern martial arts is a kind of in-group mentality, a type of um, tribalistic idea. Now, I already mentioned earlier, um, it's a little bit esoteric in that sense. You have to be in the in-group to gain the secret knowledge. And of course, you don't want outsiders to, to learn your secret knowledge. Whereas um, in the modern martial arts, there's there's less of this sense of a secret knowledge that I have to keep hidden from outsiders. Um, I'm sure it still happens, maybe within sport contexts where um, coaches might have a, a strategy for an upcoming tournament, so they have whatever their, their strategy might be a, a little bit of a secret knowledge, but it's it's quite different um, from this idea that we have special secret techniques that have been handed down to us for generations mm-hmm. and we should not let anybody else find out about it. And to go along with this sense of um, the esoteric is an adherence to tradition. We are, we are a tribe and we have certain traditions that um, differentiates us from outsiders so uh, one way for tribes to to ensure that they are not infiltrated by outsiders is to have traditions and the outsider will have to learn the tradition so it's pretty easy to know when somebody is an outsider because they simply don't know the traditions whereas in modern martial arts they are very much less traditions mm-hmm. uh, doesn't mean there aren't some even in some sport modern sport combat sports even they will have a few traditions mm-hmm. but much less and much less important another very important char- characteristic of pre-modern martial arts is their theory of power so where does power come from now in pre-modern martial arts they often um, evolved or developed within a animistic cultural tradition so within the chinese or korean um, context that would be a, a taoist cosmology so within taoism there's the idea of qi in Chinese, in Korean, we say E. Um, so it's this 
life energy or life principle that permeates everything. And if you want to have really good technique, you should do techniques that um, make use of this ghee energy and you should cultivate ghee in yourself. So you should cultivate this vital force in yourself and you should learn how to um, project the ghee or whatever. So mm -hmm. traditional martial arts even... So, so yes, this is a reason why I, I kind of dislike the term pre-modern um, because pre-modern martial arts would suggest that pre-modern people, because they adhere to a uh, a pre-modern worldview like that of the of ghee, mm -hmm. um, we might say, okay, they they didn't have any sense of biomechanics and so on, so or Newtonian physics, and that's not completely true. Mm -hmm. um, people from classical cultures definitely had an understanding of physics and biomechanics, but their general worldview was also uh, permeated with a different understanding. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, though the techniques might make use of levers and um, different ways of exhilarating different parts of the bodies for striking, whatever. Um, along with that, they would also have uh, this concept of um, chi generation. In Japan, another influence is Shinto. So Shinto is the traditional animistic um, religion of Japan. And in Shinto, there's... Uh, so Shintoism doesn't have a sense of sin, which um, the West inherited from Christianity. Rather, within Shinto, something is crooked. And mm -hmm. I mean that in a very um, aesthetic sense. So the line is not straight. The line is kind of crooked. It's, yeah. And within Shinto, Shinto's thinking, that is bad. So something that is good is straight and bright. Something mm -hmm. that is dark and gloomy or crooked, that is, is, that is bad. And in a mo moral sense. So it would not be surprising then to see that the martial art like karate, originally from Okinawa, taken to mainland Japan, should undergo certain aesthetic or technical changes mm -hmm. so that karate become much more linear in the way they do techniques. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, say, Gojuru Karate, which has mm -hmm. more circular motions. So um, these type of external cultural aspects influence the martial art. Um, in Karate, no, well, tr more traditional Karate, no bouncing when sparring. You want to keep your head level when you step over and do a punch mm -hmm. um, and so on. And people think it is purely strategic or, or technical because the shortest distance between two points is a straight line. But my hypothesis is, well, maybe that 
is part of it, but probably it has, it's because of this cultural influence of Shintoism that prefers a straightness over any type of crookedness. Mm -hmm. um, so on the other hand, we have modern martial arts and modern martial arts kind of, I, I won't say they completely rejected cultural influences, but I started to describe their techniques purely from a, what we would call a Western scientific worldview based on Newtonian physics, um, biomechanics, and later things like sports, um, physiology, and nutrition, and so on. So also within the modern martial arts, the techniques are tested within the, let's call it the laboratory of the ring. Mm -hmm. So we get references to reality-based training, live training, training with resisting opponents, um, techniques being pressure tested rather than something just being traditional. Mm -hmm. um, combined with the idea of tradition is some cultural or ritualistic practices, which we will find in pre-modern martial arts, whereas many of those cultural and ritualistic practices have been taken out from modern martial arts. Sometimes you will still find some of it um, kind of as a residue, but often it's, yeah, it's been taken out and replaced with modern sensibilities. And then pre-modern martial arts often have a type of spiritual or religious or ascetic goal. The ultimate goal in a pre-modern martial art is not simply winning over an opponent. Mm -hmm. It is, they would often say, it's winning over yourself. So it's character development or spiritual development. Whereas in modern martial arts, um, that is seldom a focus. And modern martial arts, unlike pre-modern martial arts, we, which were more holistic in nature, modern martial arts have become more singular or myopic in focus. So usually modern martial arts will tend to focus or, or gravitate towards a particular telos like sport or self-defense or um, military combat or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe f a final characteristic could be the, a different view of what the instructor is. In a pre-modern martial art, the instructor is not simply a coach. The instructor is an artisan with apprentices. So the instructor kind of teaches you skills in a very close relationship. You, you walk a path for years with the same person and they have a risk. There's a mutual responsibility towards each other. Um, the instructor is also a type of spiritual a guide, somebody mm -hmm. that tries to um, make you a better person through your, your life's course. Whereas in the modern martial arts, often 
the instructor is reduced to just being a coach and a coach for a very specific purpose, coaching you to win tournaments within a specific martial arts or um, coaching you with very specific combative skills for a very specific niche part of um, military combat. So usually in military combat today, there's hardly any hand-to-hand combat. Mm-hmm. Um, you only need it when your weapon fails. Right. And um, so it, it's very niched. It's very focused, um, which is different from pre-modern martial arts where, um, yes, you are learning combative skills, but the combative skills are part of a, a whole, a holistic understanding of what martial arts is. Martial arts is apart from teaching combat skills, they are also supposed to teach character development or things like that. And mm-hmm. it's, it's a, it's a life journey. It is not like it is often the case with professional athletes. Um, they devote their lives to it very strenuously for a certain period of time. And then at a relatively young age, they have to retire from sport because they've become too old to win and they've accumulated too many injuries, mm. which is often a different thing that we have with the traditional or pre-modern martial arts where the activity is supposed to be a lifelong journey. Um, And you should be able to practice the martial art or variations of it um, throughout your lifespan, Mm -hmm. which is an interesting um, differentiation. Um, And then... So these are the two main ideas that I have, the two um, two categories for understanding martial arts. But I go one step further and I say, well, there should be, there's a, there's a higher category, a transcended category, which we can call transmodern martial arts. So before I go on to that, um, do you have any comments so far? Yeah. So I was wondering, um, so you have like in, um, around the time that, that Kano, uh, founded the, the Kodokan, there's, there's a, there's like a shift going on in, in martial arts. Like it's being like a, I don't know what to call it, the Do or the Budo movement where, uh, they are, they are kind of sportifying those, those and trying to revitalize interest in those, um, those martial arts. But, they're, but they're also like recasting them as a way of developing the spirit and the Jap- you know, the Japanese yeah. ethos and uh, forging yourself and, and becoming better. Would you consider this kind of an anachronistic um, and not really pre it's, it, it's kind of like pre-modern martial arts, but it's more yeah. anachronistic. Yes. And so I hope I don't offend um, judokas by saying it, but m- most judo, the way judo is being practiced by most people today is as a sport, mm-hmm. not as this kind of do, um, 
this character or spiritual development system. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this is different from how Carno himself envisioned it. He did have this same this idea that he wants to use um, the sport or the, the the art of judo to for character development, but that is not how it is practiced mostly. Mm-hmm. And if it was, if it really was that type of practice, then I would say, well, okay, it's a type of traditional martial art. Um, but mostly judo today is not within that I, in that category of traditional martial art. Um, we would call it a, a combat sport or a mm-hmm. modern martial art. But it could also be a Transmodern martial art, mm-hmm. if it really embraces um, this philosophy um, that Kano, that this vision that Kano had for mm-hmm. his system. So it could be um, beyond, uh, move beyond um, this pre modern idea. Although judo is based on what they say in Korean, um yang or um, yin-yang principles. And the mm-hmm. yin-yang principle is based on Taoist cosmology. Um, you know, So in that sense, it is a traditional martial mm-hmm. because its base philosophy is this Taoist idea of yin and yang or um, soft and hard yeah. principles. Yeah. So go ahead and, and um, explain to us the, trans, the transrational or transmodern martial arts concept this is an idea or basically i i kind of came up with this idea when i interacted with people people's critique of what i do as a kind of traditional martial artist so i practice itf taekwondo and in itf taekwondo we have all kinds of um well, not all, but we have one or two um, aspects that many people critique, and one of them being what is known as the sine wave motion. Mm-hmm. And often when people critique the sine wave motion, they would say things like, oh, that's too slow, it will never work in a real fight, things like that. And then I would scratch my head thinking about, duh, Obviously, mm-hmm. why are you critiquing this? It's like looking at the boxer doing jump rope and then critiquing the boxer saying, oh, that's impro- impractical. It will never work in the, in the boxing ring. Yes, that, that's so obvious. Why are you pointing it out? Mm-hmm. We are not doing this in, as it is in this isolated um what how can i say so basically what i was thinking is you are critiquing something because you what you think it is is not what it is so you are thinking i'm busy with some pre-modern secret itf secret the sine wave idea Mm -hmm. and um so you are critiquing me for doing these pre-modern secret movements or whatever Whereas I am, my own way of thinking about it is completely different. I understand the limitations of it, but I'm using it 
um, as a metaphor or a mnemonic device um, for other things. And I'm using it as part of a cultural heritage, an intangible cultural heritage. The sine wave motion um, reflects traditional body culture. So if this is one of my areas of research is Korean body culture and in traditional Korean um, physical activities, there's something called ogumjil. And ogumjil is basically the bending of the knee while doing motions. So mm -hmm. in traditional dance, when they step, they would kind of bend the knee, unlike um, Japanese dance, where they would kind of float stationary over the stage. In Taekyeon, every step is kind of this bending knee step. Mm -hmm. And this Koreans inherited karate from Japan, but very soon this karate started to change. Um, even in the, this kind of the sport version of Taekwondo, the WT version, they started bouncing almost immediately because it's part of this Korean tradition of Ogunjil. It's part of their body culture. It, it's almost mm. inevitable for Koreans to do this. Well, Korean culture is changing now with K-pop and so on, um, but that's a topic <laughs> for another conversation. Any case, so I started to realize that um, modern martial artists would often critique more other martial artists, but their critique is a type of fallacy. And then I um, happened upon this work by Ken Wilber about this pre-trans fallacy. So mm -hmm. the pre-trans fallacy has different aspects, but one of the fallacies is when you see an activity and you think that that activity is superstitious, outdated, um, something pre-modern or pre-rational. So that is the this type of fallacy. And it happens on many levels, and we can look at some examples of that. But it can also happen in the opposite direction, where people will do traditional techniques and think that they are doing something um, elevated, enlightened, that mm -hmm. the sports people don't know about or the modern martial artists um, have abandoned, whatever. So that's a, an opposite type of fallacy where you do something that is really nonsensical, but you think it is greater because it's part of this very old traditional um, wisdom, yeah. kinetic wisdom. So the fallacy goes in in different ways. But I think the best way to to talk about um, what a trans modern martial artist is to maybe go through some of these characteristics and then compare it. Um, yeah. So let's think about. So my main martial arts is probably taekwondo so let's look at some examples of taekwondo so taekwondo is a modern martial art it is something that developed like from let's say the 1950s from the very start it was influenced with 
by um, modern ways of speaking about it, using Newtonian physics, um, using formulas like force equals mass times acceleration, things like that, and removing much of the, the esoteric vagueness. So in uh, true traditional martial arts techniques are often described metaphorically or using some imagery, um, silk reeling or stealing the peach or something like that. It's a mm-hmm. philosophical, no, not philosophical, it's a idiomatic or metaphorical description for a, a technique. Whereas Taekwondo very early on kind of ditched those types of um, symbolic terminology. So mm-hmm. st- this symbolic terminology is also one of the ways to keep your tradition secret. You need to be initiated into the system to know what these words mean. And if there's the manual with the secret techniques and there's some inscription, it's written in, in symbolism. So these are all ways of... Um, preventing outsiders from learning this knowledge. Yeah. But this is yeah. different from modern martial arts and it's different in Taekwondo. Very early on, the names were um, changed. The um, So very early Taekwondo, we, we can't really even call it Taekwondo at that time. It was Koreanized um, Karate. Mm-hmm. They would simply use the, the Karate terms, but... Um, based on the Chinese characters, the hanja. Mm. Um, so uh, a typical stance might be the horse riding stance. So people will all know what is this kind of a deep uh, stance with your weight distribution, 50-50% and kind of in a nice deep squat. So this is a um, philosophical way, of, no, not philosophical, a symbolic way mm-hmm. of describing the motion. But in, in ITF Taekwondo, that technique was very quickly changed to anansogi, sitting stance. Um, so sitting stance is already much less abstract than horse riding stance. Mm-hmm. Um, or we have term, the terminology was basically very straightforward. A punch is called a punch. If you punch with your front forefist, it's a front forefist punch. If you do a strike with the back fist, it's a back fist strike. Um, it's a forearm block, it's a front kick, it's a side kick, it's a back kick. So no confusion about what the word means. It's very straightforward. So that's a um, very easy example to show why I would describe Taekwondo as a modern um, if, I could, if I could um, cut in with something for to yeah. to, add, to add to your thinking, um, I know that I don't. I think ITF has done something similar with with General Toys manuals and stuff. But I know that in the the Cookie One, they've developed an entire taxonomy to standardize how okay. to name a technique, which words go in which order, and you know, how to prioritize, you know, different features of the techniques so that the different techniques that might have similar names don't cross over with each other. And um, I'm pretty sure that the Kodokan did something similar with, with what Kano did with trying to Mm. figure out which, which 
parts of the body he was going to use and how he's going to order those words to name the different throws. So there's like, there's like with modern martial arts, there seems to be an emergent. So like with, with the modernist approach, right. There's like a philosophical modernism that undertones it. So there's an entire taxonomy of how to name the techniques and how to organize them into groups. And how to de- de- also with that is the demystification of the terminology. Yeah, yeah. So the 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 terminology before was I might say something like it was like a poetic analogy. You know, it, it was more poetic. Yeah. It was more li- literary. It was uh, it, you said symbolic. Yeah, definitely symbolic. So it's it's um, you you can tell when you're talking to someone who does kung fu because they'll. They'll say, oh, yeah, this is repulse the monkey. <laughs> you know I mean? Nobody who does karate would use a term like that anymore. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so in that sense, taekwondo, we can describe as a modern martial art. And um, so even though I say taekwondo is a modern martial art, it still succumbs to pre-modern um, how can I put it, to the seduction of the pre-modern martial arts because right. there, there's always something intriguing about the esoteric. Yep. And, and that's why people, you know, that there's something about a traditional martial art that makes it um, intriguing, enticing, it, it, it part of that secretiveness. And one thing in Taekwondo, for example, is the claim that Taekwondo is a 2,000-year-old Korean martial art. Mm. Now, just to make sure, today I went onto the Cookie One website, and we are um, recording this podcast in the middle of 2021. And I checked the history of Taekwondo. So they have this page on the history of Taekwondo and they start with the three kingdoms periods of Taekwondo history. And although they don't explicitly say Taekwondo comes from um, this old tradition, they also don't explicitly say it doesn't. So (laughs) they mention the three kingdoms and then they go to the Goryeo um, dynasty and and there's this sudden jump to our era, but there's no, nowhere does it say that it doesn't, it's not a lineage. And because it's on one page with the heading, the history of Taekwondo, the assumption is, okay, Taekwondo has this um, lineage from ancient Korea, which has been thoroughly debunked. It's not true, but it's, it's, Still in Taekwondo, that's a modern martial art. There, there's this clinging to a, a Korean history, a Korean lineage um, that is not there. And of course, Korea don't really want to acknowledge the inconvenient truth that their national sport, Taekwondo, is based on the oppressor, historic process oppressor Japan mm-hmm. um, based on one of their martial arts. So one have to keep in mind the nation, nationalistic reasons for the motivation yeah. behind all of this. But a transmodern 
um, approach would be to acknowledge that indeed Taekwondo comes out of karate. However, Taekwondo has been Koreanized and we can use these facts. Um, we, we shouldn't be hiding any of it. We should be embracing the history because then it opens up um, a better understanding of the martial art and its evolution and change. Um, whereas if you hide it, you are basically losing out on some important historical um, knowledge, mm -hmm. um, which I think is a pity for purely academic reasons, but it also might be a pity for um, other reasons, just understanding the martial art better. Mm -hmm. So something else is this idea of the uh, master-disciple lineage, which maybe it's, it's definitely more the case in ITF Taekwondo, where some people would think that my proximity, my lineage proximity to the founder of ITF Taekwondo, General Cheong, he somehow legitimizes my technique. Mm. Um, it brings an authority to, to my version of Taekwondo, whereas, whereas somebody else who didn't train or is far removed from um, Cheong Hee is not doing authentic Taekwondo, for example. Yeah. Um, so that is a type of pre-modern thinking that has seeped into a modern martial art. Yeah. And a transmodern way of thinking would be to acknowledge the, the visionary mind of General Cheong Hee, and but not to deify him. So you can respect him without deifying him. And that frees you to, um, well, firstly, not to have this idea that there's magic in the bloodline of General Cheong Hee. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, I'm not saying this in a disrespecting, in an attempt to be disrespectful to General Che or his family. It's just, it's a fact. General Che was the founder of ITF Taekwondo, but he also had many helpers, many important, um, very talented instructors that was part of the team that developed this martial art and everybody that does ITF Taekwondo today is from this lineage, one of their lineages. Mm -hmm. And even today, if you did not learn Taekwondo directly from any grandmaster or you are several generations departed from one of these, um, removed from one of these um, Grandmasters, it doesn't delegitimate. What's the word? It doesn't delegitimize. <laughs> exactly your your training. You can yeah. still be a fantastic taekwondo practitioner, an ITF taekwondo practitioner, um, regardless of who your 
grandfather in Taekwondo was. And so there's often these quibbles, you know, ITF Taekwondo is broken into different ITF groups and there's all these ways that these different groups are trying to legitimize their organizations. And because of that, again, they fall back to these pre-modern tribalistic type of thinking, which is unfortunate. Whereas a trans-modern martial artist would be open-minded and say, I can learn from anybody. Mm-hmm. There's, there's no shame in learning from somebody from another organization. I don't have to feel ashamed about searching from from knowledge from knowledgeable people mm-hmm. whereas if you are stuck in a pre-modern thinking then you might feel this tribalistic shame or, or your system might prevent you the organization might actually prevent you yeah. from doing that um, and again about the, this there's no secret knowledge in so this is maybe a, an important place to um, stop for a moment is this idea of secret knowledge. So modern martial artists would look back at any pre-modern martial art activity and just dismiss it as useless, outdated, or even superstitious nonsense. Um, and this is a one of those pre-trans fallacies at work mm-hmm. because modern martial arts are often so myopic in their focus let's say it is just a sport they completely disregard any activity that doesn't very clearly contribute to the sport outcome winning a competition for instance um so recently i i contributed an article for a project about using martial arts as therapy um Mm -hmm. psychological therapy so while preparing for that article i was reading different articles and i came across an article article about um the health benefits of chi um, disciplines like Qigong and Tai Chi Chuan. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't really adhere to the idea of Qi. Um, I, I keep open-minded about things, but my, my thinking is um, that Qi was a way for people within a previous mindset um, to explain phenomena that they observed, like the phenomena of life, life energy, being alive. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so let, let's stop there. <laughs> so I, I, I don't want to say that I completely dismiss G because I always try to keep an open mind, but at the moment, yeah, I'm kind of agnostic towards it. Rather, I would explain things in more modern scientific um, uh, paradigms. Mm-hmm. Uh, creating power, we do this through um, biomechanics, 
physics and so on. Yeah. However, so this article that I read was actually a kind of an aggregated article. So they looked at, I forgot the number of studies. They looked, I think it was over 60 studies uh, that claimed that the activity of um, Qigong or Tai Chi somehow had health benefits. So those were increases in um, breathing ability, increase in bone density, better heart conditions, um, mm -hmm. longevity, uh, mental health, and so on. Now, we can say, or, or we will probably dismiss the idea that it is because of qi cultivation. Mm -hmm. So most of us would say no. So, the, so if you are stuck in this pre-modern mindset, you would just say, this is nonsense. Those studies are flawed. Um, there's no such thing as qi. And practicing qi te techniques or disciplines is a waste of time. However, a transmodern person would acknowledge the studies, but kind of transcend the pre-modern thinking of attributing it to qi and rather say, well, probably there's other things that these activities have in mind, such as um, certain breathing exercises, certain stretching exercises, um, mindfulness activities, meditation, and so on. And it's the culmination of these things that result in these health benefits. So we can still look at those activities, these qi cultivation activities, and say, well, how can we use it? How can we incorporate better breathing? And I mean, these days, there's so much research on breathing, the value of breathing, different types of breathing, and so on. Um, and we can think, okay, how can we include certain stretching techniques for the best, not simply um, athletic performance, but also for health benefits? And how can we include meditative or um, mind-body connection practices that can induce better health, better well-being. So a, a transmodern martial artist would look back at pre-modern um, martial arts, question these things, look critically at them, not simply dismiss them, but say, okay, what is there? Why has these things survived for so long? Is there any value that we can derive from it? And can we maybe um, research it, reinterpret it, repackage it to still gain some of the same value um, or for our modern practices and go beyond thinking of our practice simply as a myot activity of it's just a sport mm. um, so something else that we might think of is this 
connection between the the instructor and the trainee which in modern martial arts have often been reduced to simply a coach and the coach's goal is to make you win or make the organization win at any cost kind of disregarding the agency um, or subjectivity of the athlete so we hear all kinds of horrific stories of um, coaches abusing um, their athletes of athletic organizations abuse of athletes for the sake of money or whatever whereas the traditional uh, martial art or pre-modern martial art had a different type of connection and i'm not saying that abuses cannot and do do not and did not happen within traditional martial art context or within pre-modern martial arts i'm sure they mm -hmm. did there are um, immoral people in every age but built in is a sense of responsibility there's respect from the disciple to the master and there's a sense of responsibility from the master to the disciple it's more of a artisan apprentice relationship and it's a lifelong relationship you walk a path with your student and me as an instructor i don't see my my students as simply a means to win medals and i've seen instructors like that it, it's all about the competition and it's all about winning medals and winning medals is good for his own ego um for me it is that there's a different type of relationship and thankfully i've had some good instructors myself who who gave me the sense of family um sense of um filial filial piety maybe um mm. which is part of the the east asian worldview and i think there's there's an important value in that and i think we should as modern martial artists not just throw it out but rather transcend and incorporate some of those ideas and with that maybe even um this this idea that the martial art is more than just one thing it's more than just a sport for instance yeah. the martial arts is a lifestyle it's something that builds the person as a whole and within traditional martial arts there he was and there is a concept of character building the martial arts is there to build character and build virtue maybe that's a better word to use than simply character because you can you can be very brave and courageous you can be a very brave and courageous mobster hmm. and be part of the mafia and be have the singular virtue of courage hmm. but that is uh, and i mean as a martial arts competitor you do need courage that's important but you can be courageous and very immoral 
in other ways mm -hmm. and traditional martial arts had the sense that this activity is a type of ascetic activity to build you into becoming a better person and of course what a better person is is partly culturally derived but nevertheless there is the sense of betterment of your character betterment of you as a person building virtues and a trans modern view is that it's not good enough just to build those select virtues related to sport courage sportsmanship and grit <laughs> those are good things i'm not saying that i aren't but there are other very important skills that we also have to develop and we know it intuitively like when we see somebody in, in a sports competition and they are playing unfairly they are not being good sportsmen we, we have an intuitive dislike of their behavior and yeah um i i think it was oh i forgot which one of the gracies um said that modern ufc and and he used the term it's not real martial arts because it, it oh so I, i'm really paraphrasing here but it kind of glorifies immoral behavior yeah so yeah. and and that is true like if your only focus is winning and you are in a club training mma and it's a very comp competitive club and that's the only focus you will win at any cost um you know that's when people start um doping and whatever other means they might use to mm -hmm. to get the edge um and it does not make them better people whereas there is some scientific evidence some research that say well traditional martial arts um tend to create um some virtues within people and now we might ask why is that the case and can't we include some of that in our martial art practice let the martial art be more than just a sport let it be a a means to betterment mm -hmm. character development um whatever awesome very cool um i think that uh i, I was uh i if i if i recall correctly i think you you alluded to the the existence perhaps of postmodern martial arts but you weren't going to go into that yeah um did you have did you have anything in mind? i'm curious of what your thoughts were on on how to categorize a, a postmodern so in one sense mixed martial arts are postmodern martial arts mm -hmm. so one of the characteristics of a postmodern martial arts is the the blurring of lines mm -hmm. so traditionally uh, well now i'm using traditionally in a different sense but you had striking arts and you had grappling arts but now in in mma that is that's a 
you you simply don't have. So there's a blending, a merging, merging of um, systems. So in that sense, it is a MMA would be a postmodern martial art. Mm-hmm. Um, Jeet Kune Do as Bruce Lee envisioned it would be postmodern because it is taking martial arts from different, um, not, not just different styles, grappling, striking, whatever, but even from different cultures. Mm-hmm. Like he took ideas from Western boxing and Savate and Taekwondo and wherever, and he brought it together in this amalgamation of something else. Now, there are other aspects of postmodernism, like the questioning of grand narratives, and that's something that many modern martial arts do, is they question the lineage, question the old authority systems, and so on. So that would be another thing by which we can say, okay, something is um, postmodern. Um, but of course, we are, although the world is kind of seeped in postmodernism, we are also moving beyond postmodernism. And that is a, a big other discussion. Mm-hmm. And how those types of martial arts would look is quite interesting. Um, we might even just think about the influence of technology on martial arts mm-hmm. and uh, in cookie to in wt taekwondo that the use of the electronic scoring system has completely changed the martial art like mm-hmm. from around 2008 um and you have people being against it and for it but that's just one example just by adding an electronic scoring system you have mm-hmm. affected the martial art a lot and this might bring us into um, what some people would call hyper modernism um, but yeah that is hyper post postmodernism yeah. or hyper modernism yeah post post modernism <laughs> might be a different way of thinking about it but that post post modernism um, as i understand the idea is falling back into tribalistic thinking. Mm -hmm. So if you consider globalism as a type of modernism, that uh, the boundaries of states have kind of blurred because of the ease of travel and the internet and so on. So globalism, Mm -hmm. we live in a global village, that's a postmodern idea. Post-most modernism is neo-nationalism or people re-identifying themselves within their tribalistic little groups. It can be in the sense of sport or politically or whatever. Mm -hmm. So in martial arts, you could have what I would say, I would have think is a very good thing post the postmodern cross-training that's happened has really improved martial arts skills across the board. Because mm-hmm. you can't live in this bubble anymore thinking that your secret techniques will work. Um, yeah. We've moved beyond that, but we now see a type of um, remission to this type of tribalistic thinking. And if you are 
a modern martial artist, let's say you practice MMA and anything outside of MMA is nonsense, it's useless, then you have reduced yourself to this tribal thinking again, um, mm. which mm. is not ideal. Yeah, yeah, I got you. Okay, so po- so postmodern martial arts is really there's like a there's a breaking down of of every traditional and modern um, engine of transmission, I guess you could say. So, like transmitting knowledge between. So, with the with pre modern, you have the transmission from from master to disciple with oh. With with modern, you have the curriculum, the organization, and the coach. And now with postmodern, you have people bringing in functional skill from mass communication, from watching fighters on television, from watching YouTube, yeah. from uh, webinars. You know, getting yeah. getting instruction from people they would have you know, 30, 40 years ago would never had access to because it was just too expensive to, you know, to fly overseas or, or something like that. Yeah. So it is cross training, but it's, mm-hmm. it can include cross training under a coach, but it's also cross training from any other, by any other means. Yeah. So it's a, it's a questioning of authority and the coach is an authority. So that's part of the, the postmodern one of the ele- uh, characteristics of postmodernism is questioning authority or questioning mm-hmm. grand narratives. And yeah, questioning the coach is an aspect of that. So, and it can be better or it can be worse. Sometimes it's better, sometimes it's not. So, postmodernism, yeah. many people are very negative when they hear post- the term postmodernism, they have a, it, it triggers them into an emotional response. I am not. <laughs> like that and i think many good things can come out of it um and i think um so an element of postmodernism is this idea of your lived experience gives you a Mm -hmm. glimpse of reality and different people have different lived experiences and so some people would just say well postmodernism um is so there's no fundamental truth it is yeah but that that is a negative um way of interpreting postmodernism postmodernism is also searching for truth and it asks whose truth because the more perspectives you get the better idea you get of what reality is. Reality is really complex and mm-hmm. it might be described as a hologram. Each slice has a, a little bit of the truth. And the more slices of this hologram you have, the closer you come to reality. Um, so po- a postmodernist search for truth is not saying that there is no truth. It's just saying that truth is really fragmented. And it's complicated and it's complex. And the more views we get, the more perspectives we get, the more cross-training we do, Mm -hmm. the better we will approximate um, truth. 
truth being uh, a very big philosophical word at the moment. Yeah, um, the elephant. Um, but let's say um, the closer we can get to effective fighting, if that's our goal, yeah, in different contexts. Yeah, that's that one's an interesting one that 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 crosses very definitively into my wheelhouse, and that's. Um, I have a frustration with, I guess you would say the modern approach, hmm. which, which is uh, the idea that the curriculum and the coach are the two uh, arbiters yeah. of, of what is effective. Um, and I know we, we talk about things emerging in competition as, as a way to test, to test that, but there, that doesn't really show up a lot in um, in training because training is highly structured in a in in a um, in the modernist sense, like the John Dewey type of mm. mass education, public education, yeah. um, classroom type of education, where there's one curriculum that's 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 that is largely unchanging everybody has to move through it there's very few exceptions of of um you know you will have situations where maybe if you have uh, special needs or something that you can you can change it but for most able-bodied people coming up through martial arts the curriculum doesn't really doesn't really change you have to you have to know these group of techniques at this level hmm. you have to know these group of techniques at this level and um my my criticism of the of the modernist approach is that uh that that approach to motor learning and to learning in general leaves out or de-emphasizes the organism within that within that environment the person mm. the subject um who is actually the most important yeah. element of that of that environment because the organism has the actual learning process. They have the instruments inside them to learn. Mm. Um, and so uh, a lot of what I've been pushing on the podcast is to envision training as a interaction, a dynamic interaction, but you know, it, it depends on, on what it is that you're trying to get good at. If you're trying to get good at self-defense or, or fighting competition, fighting, then your training should rep re represent the dynamics that you find in those environments. So training will be largely uh, varying levels of, of aliveness. If you want to get good at uh, um, whether for competition or just for yourself, you know, your tool, your pumse, your forms, your kata, uh, the, the traditional um, basics to the different ways that you do line drills and you cut down and you do certain segments of the, of the Pumze and everything is very rote and you repeat and repeat and repeat and continue to refine it, refine it, refine it. Um, that is very good for that sort of, that sort of activity, but that is not good for, um, it's not good for learning to, to become better at sparring or fighting or self-defense, mm. uh, which has been ways in which, um, actually everyone not just traditional martial artists like taekwondo people or judo not not judo but um like a karate and kung fu they've crossed those wires to in many ways to say 
yeah. So when we're doing these line drills, we're actually getting better at the skill we're going to use in, um, in sparring. I would say, no, you're not because the skill only makes sense when it is in an environment where you're interacting with somebody who's also moving around and also uh-huh. can, can counter or attack at any point in, in, um, where you are yeah. forced there, there to be, interact. I'm, there should be a, hopefully there should be a, a type of transfer of skill, but that, that ultimately happens mostly within the correct context. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, the boxer skipping rope is well, what's he working on fitness or some yeah. agility, foot agility, um, but you don't want him to be skipping rope that much, like just enough <laughs> in small yeah. amounts, just to get something done and then move on to, to sparring or what yeah. in boxing, that would be the goal. So more time sparring and less time skipping is yeah, I would, I would, I would view, I would view skipping rope as, and I don't know, boxers might disagree, but I don't care. Uh, the uh, I, I would view skipping rope as a, as a conditioning, a supplemental conditioning exercise. I wouldn't mm-hmm. view it, I wouldn't view it anyway as a um, as a skill, a perceptive as boxing skill. Um, it so is one the, would hope that traditional martial arts would use these other activities in a supplementary function or as a way to transfer skill in some way. But again, um, spending more time on the goal on the actual activity is yeah. more important than these. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. now saying that there is other value. Let's take Tull or Pumse, Kata as an example. Yeah. There's value in these activities that might not translate to sparring, but which are still valuable. Uh, Mm -hmm. So I can think, let me give two examples. The one example is these are cultural, intangible cultural artifacts. Yeah. Uh, it's part of a culture. It is like a, a cultural dance or something like that. And there's there's value in that just because it is part mm-hmm. of um, a cultural heritage. So now we don't need to force everybody to do it. Some people mm-hmm. have no interest in it. And then if that's the case, they should probably choose another activity that doesn't include these cultural aspects. Yeah. So that's the one thing. The other thing is there's a term in Korean called suheng. And suheng, it, it's difficult to translate because if you just translate it into English, it means like a discipline, some mm-hmm. repeated practice. Yeah. It is that, but it's more than that. Mm-hmm. So a, a suheng is an activity which we can think of as a type of movement meditation. It's an activity that can put you in a type of flow state or in a meditative state, and there is value in that as well. So people can practice forms 
for that purpose and it's sure benefits them in some way mm -hmm. but it doesn't necessarily add much to their fighting skill mm -hmm. and it's important to know that i'm, I'm not saying um, forms cannot contribute to to sparring ability but then you need uh, methods pedagogical strategies to achieve that yeah. um, and i've heard you speak um, on your podcast about things like this before um, yeah yeah ian has a he has an interesting way to translate so he'll he'll take a series in the kata and then um there will be there'll be sort of an open ended bunkai or a, an application of it but mm -hmm. it's not it's not a traditional bunkai in the sense that it's like do these movements exactly in in response to this exact attack right and it's very yeah. discreet and it's very his is a little bit more open and it's more like a, a tactic or a strategy that yeah. to approach like a, a range a given range within um combat and then what he'll do is you'll you'll rep a few of those those types of tactics and then you'll you'll go straight into something that's live you'll do what he calls kata based sparring i think that's the best way to approach it um yeah. and and speaking of this this is a good example of modern martial arts falling back into pre-modern thinking so you have in taekwondo for example you have people who look at uh, the forms and then trying to find secret techniques yeah <laughs> like yeah the, the buheng the bunkai so and it these techniques are really secret because you couldn't have come up with it yourself that the interpretation is so creative and out there yeah. that like it it's nonsensical but then there are people who find quite applicable techniques or uh, buheng applications and they they are generally quite obvious and then they use it as principles for further training for mm -hmm. playing with certain strategies and so on uh, as ian um, does and I'm very much for that approach. Mm -hmm. So I, in in my personal practice, I practice the more that the forms, the patterns as a cultural a heritage, and there's value in it as it is. But then the forms also can teach other principles, principles of movements, um, strategic principles, and so on. But you need systems, you need pedagogical strategies in place to, mm -hmm. to achieve that. You can't just practice forms and think it will make you a better fighter. Yeah. In, yeah. Yeah. There's a, I, there should be a process. Yeah, there should be. But the, the, the process is where the, the curriculum bloats because without, without a principled understanding of how things like motor control work and skill acquisition mm. work, you know, people, and this is, you know, it's already been, the curriculum's already been this way across a lot of traditional, tra more traditional martial arts, where you have a series of, of like one steps before you ever get to anything live. And maybe there's something even between one steps and the live practice. And so you have a series of actually three separate successive exercises that are almost exactly the same type of motor activity as the previous one. Um, but we think that we're tr translating, we're really not mm. translating because you're mm. not, you're not loading the perceptual system the way that you need to, 
to build the, the actual ability that you need to use something in a live situation. So if you, you have a strategy or a tactic that you think that you can ground in uh, the kata or in the, the form or whatever, it's, in, in my opinion, I think, I think Ian would, would basically agree. It's really important to move to some sort of exercise where you can start to safely do that as, as live as possible, as unscripted and uncooperative mm-hmm. as you can. And you don't have to kill each other, but um, you should be interacting in a way that's dynamic um, and that is, uh, that's not following any sort of predictable sequence because all those sorts of things that we do in traditional martial arts where um, I just thought of a, another, a, a really good one. So we, so we have the form, we do the form and then we do the one step. And then some people add a flow drill on top of that. I think Orion does. Um, and then you'll get to something that's actually genuinely live. So the flow drill looks, it appears to be dynamic, but it follows, usually follows a script. And when you follow a script that messes up with where your attention is attuned, which is important to, to uh, something like sparring or, or self-defense. So it screws up with your, your, your attention and where you've got your attention. It also never gives you a chance to uh, develop genuine timing because if you know the this, this script, you, you sort of get locked into a uh, rhythmic timing that is not representative of um, an actual fight about uh, or a self-defense situation or anything, whatever it is you're, you're trying to train for. So there's all these little things built in that sort of break the effectiveness of that training. And you, you actually don't need to have a flow drill between you know, the, the tactic that you've got out of your, your sparring or not your sparring, the tactic you've, you've got out of your Pumse, you don't have to have a translation period. You just have to have a live exercise that's designed in such a way that it's more lower pressure. And then you can, you can scale it because until you get to the live situation, you're not training virtually any of the perceptual motor skills that you need to have in order to actually use that in a real I have context. a question about the, the flow drill. Uh-huh. When, when you say flow drill, do you mean a choreographed drill? It usually, so it usually follows, I guess you could say choreographed. So like what you find in the Filipino martial arts, it follows a particular pattern. You can break, mm-hmm. you can break patterns sometimes, but most of the exercise itself follows a sort of recursive um, pattern, I guess you could say. Yeah. So, um, well, and so I'm speaking within an ITF Taekwondo pedagogy, and I, I know it is not universally taught the same, but there is supposed to be a, a move from what what we can consider low variable randomness mm-hmm. towards high variable randomness, which mm-hmm. is the complexity or chaos of a fight. Mm-hmm. So there might be a some type of step sparring, and mm-hmm. the step sparring limits the amount of steps, but completely keeps open the type of attack. So somebody might do three attacks, but you don't know which three attacks. Mm -hmm. 
uh, three steps but it random techniques and you add levels of uh, extra variables until you get to something that is um, free sparring mm -hmm. how, how do you feel about such a system uh, I so I would need to watch them do it, but the, the issue is I think it's a little bit too discreet. So the fact that there is no uh, open-ended to it, it begins and ends like very, it's like one, two, three. Um, there needs to be more feedback, tighter feedback loops. Mm -hmm. So instead of just defend one, two, three, you're just defending or responding to three techniques. Um, there's also no defend and attack. So you're not you're not necessarily in your natural sparring cadence. Some people are more attackers. Some people are more counters. Um, some people are doing things to try and draw you in to, to, to counter. And some people are very attack style. So when you do something like that, you're not allowing the organism to hmm. explore their natural sparring cadence. Um, there might be some other issues with what I call representativeness, like mi important missing dynamics with, with how people interact with each other. But I think the fact that the feedback system is not as open or close to, it doesn't have to be exactly as open as sparring, but close to that, that level of, of openness, you might call it recursive, right? So if you, if you, you do jujitsu, right? So a lot of times mm -hmm. if you're doing something like positional sparring, um, it's a it's a one hundred percent live, but the range it, you work in is limited, yeah. right? And that's an excellent way of of actually doing live training without being overwhelming to a person. Um, the other is to adjust intensity, and within that range, you often find yourself actually in the same positions, even though it's genuinely a hundred percent alive. And that's because uh, it's it tends to be recursive, so. There's certain patterns of attack that your opponent has or certain patterns of attack you have, and you're going to keep finding yourselves in those situations um, until you find a, a way to effectively avoid it. And you need that feedback loop mm -hmm. in order to continue to rapidly, you actually need to rapidly fail until something starts to work. And when you have yeah. that tight feedback loop, you are able to come genuinely to discover that that functional tactic on your own without necessarily yeah. a coach telling giving you the answer of how to do it without an instructor giving you the answer um and you can't really do that when it's just one two three learning through failure yeah exactly yeah much of learning is, is actually through failure yeah. <laughs> yeah i understand yeah and that that's indeed that is missing from many um systems that are so curriculum focused that even mm -hmm. your responses your defenses are um scripted yeah um, yeah 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 that that's been a big frustration of mine for 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 many many years to the point that it's actually difficult for me to even go to a brazilian jiu-jitsu school because um I love to roll. I love a lot of the training methods they use. But when Brazilian jiu-jitsu people want to make their stuff, quote unquote, better, they, they forget what makes their system so great. And they, they default to very traditional ways of teaching. So they start to structure things a lot more.
they start to script things a lot more. You go yeah. back to um, very rote repetition much more. And so you do drills that are, that are very uh, scripted and semi not or non, non-compliant or semi-compliant um, instead of exploring within the context of uh, positional sparring or free rolling or whatever um, they regress to yeah. the type of training methods that they actually, in any other context, they would make fun of. They would, hmm. you know, a jujitsu person would malign, you know, a karate person doing line drills or one-step sparring, but then they'll turn around and they'll basically make the equivalent basically of one-step sparring on one the ground. sparring on the floor. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I've, I've trained in those floor one-step sparrings as well before. Um, yeah. That is, that is true. I'm, I'm thinking, uh, maybe I lost my thought just now. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I forgot what I was going to say. Yeah, no worries. No worries. Yeah, I, I know that it's um, for, for the, the, the approach that I, I advocate for on the podcast, um, it's really just to whatever it is you want to get good at, that's what you have to tailor your that's what you have to tailor your, your, your training methods for. And so for me, I, I fundamentally envision, uh, based on, you know, motor classifications that, that already exist in physical education and stuff like that, uh, you know, forms and, uh, and sparring are just fundamentally different motor activities. And so for me, there's no, there's no problem for me in, in doing both. The, the, the issue is, um, when you try to do them, for example, in the same class, you run into uh, interference between the motor skills um, that can that can hamper your development of either one. Um, hmm. And you run into issues of balancing. Like if you if you have somebody who would like to become, you know, you have a young person that's really interested in becoming a good competitor um, in the sparring ring, p- putting them two hours a week in a traditional class doing one steps and self-defense routines and stuff is not, is, is kind of an unethical use of their time. Like they're paying you mm-hmm. money. They want to be good competitors. Um, you're their instructor. They're trusting you to give them the best training, balancing their training time with like an hour of competition class and then, or to maybe two hours of competition class a week. And then another two or three hours of traditional uh, training is, um, is very problematic for, for serving them. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where a type of honesty, integrity, which is mm-hmm. one of the, the tenets of Taekwondo, um, right. comes in from an instructor's point of view. So I've, yeah. I've had in the past, I had to tell students that, listen, I think you should join a kickboxing class mm-hmm. because what I'm doing here is not ideal for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, many instructors to whom it, teaching is the livelihood, coaching is the livelihood, they, they might have other incentives not mm-hmm. to be so honest. To be all but things yes. to all people. <laughs> yeah. And if, if a, a martial art like, the one I teach, ITF Taekwondo, while well, I teach Hapkido and other stuff too, but I am teaching a cultural system. 
So the people that study with me, they train in many different aspects. But if they want to be specialists in a particular aspect, um, we will have to do additional training or they will have to cross train or something else. And you need to be honest with your students. And often um, people like myself, I'm not a full-time coach, I'm a full-time academic. So I teach two, three times a week, maybe. Um, there's only so much you can do in mm -hmm. a two-hour class twice right. a week. Right, um, right. You have to be careful yeah. how you how you balance them. This is where the the postmodernism comes in, and that is uh, when you have instructors who firmly, firmly believe that the 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 uh, the more isolated forms-based traditional training actually does improve the sparring. And whereas I think that there's objective scientific basis against that, a lot of these people just simply don't agree. Right. <laughs> yeah. And they've, they've become very skilled actually at rationalizing ways to try and circumvent that, which is really in one, in some ways impressive and in other ways, maddening to try and, to, to have a discourse with somebody like that. Um, they firmly, so what do you do? Because now they, they actually firmly, there's, there is no lack of integrity in the sense that they know, they don't, they don't know that they're doing their students wrong. They firmly yeah. believe so they, they are doing their students right. This ingenious. Yeah. 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 There's a, there's a gap in knowledge. Um, in some cases, there's a gap in knowledge that they have actually come into contact with someone to let them know, hey, there is a gap in knowledge, and they've decided to to dig their heels in and say, eh. <laughs> no, I think that this way is more like a pre-modern thinking of this is the way that was handed down to me. It worked for me yeah. too, so I think it's going to work for my my children, my uh, my students, um, my disciples. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that that one is a, that's a tough one. That's a really tough one. That's one where I'm trying to. Uh, you know, talk about things like how motor control works and how uh, perceptual skill acquisition works. Um, not to uh, bash people because I like I like forms. I still practice forms. Um, I enjoy forms competition, kata competition, pumse competition. Um, I think that that is an activity that has intrinsic value. I agree with you on that point. I I agree that it has intrinsic value to itself. Um, just my issue where, where I butt heads with people is its place in the pedagogy forms. Doesn't a lot of people are under the impression that forms fuels your sparring or fuels your self-defense and pedagogically, I just don't think that's the case. That's not the case that they're, they're separate activities and you can do mm. both. You can do both under the same banner of, of karate or yeah. taekwondo, but you have to recognize that they are separate activities. So if you want to get better at something else, you know, I had a Kung Fu teacher tell me, it's like, if you want to get better at fighting, you just got to do more. Uh, Lu or your, you know, whatever they call it, shings or whatever they call their forms. Like you have to do more forms, more forms. And he's like, that's what my master told me. <laughs> and back yeah. then, I, back then I ate it up. I was a teenager. So I was into the Kung Fu and all that kind of stuff. So I was like, yeah, dude, for real, do more forms. And then later. Yeah, I had, um, <laughs> this, I remember I started, when I started Taekwondo, my instructor at the time, who I still have much respect for, mm -hmm. but it is, for reasons beyond Taekwondo. He was kind of like a father figure for me when I needed one. Um, but in any yeah. case, uh, I was there, maybe my second training, and we are going to do um, free sparring, and he's teaching us to do free sparring. 
And the first thing we learned was to kind of bounce on our on the balls of our feet. And I mm -hmm. questioned him. I said, won't this make me really tired? And instead of explaining, giving me a rationale, he was like, who do you think you are to come in here yeah. and question things that have been brought by these grandmasters, like something like that. I was yeah, kind of yeah. taken aback. Um, and he, maybe it was a bad day for him. He didn't want to be questioned by this young white belt brat. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so his answer was just this arbitrary thing about its mm -hmm. tradition. It's these great grandmasters know what they were doing when yeah. they developed the system and you shouldn't question it. And I mean, there, there are reasons for being light on your feet. So you could have given me a, a more scientific informed answer yeah, yeah. on the day, which he didn't, but sometimes people, yeah, I mean, it's just tradition. So yeah, <laughs> it has, know it has been handed it. down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and which is interesting. I mean, he, he knew that Taekwondo is not, you know, generations old mm -hmm. within within his lifetime. Yeah, I, I guess there there's a even there's the pre rational thinking of of a tradition passed down. There's also the there's also this this innate human um this human inclination we have to look at people who've been successful and then kind of it's like in a halo effect of so everything they do everything they do in training mm. must be very, that that's that's the recipe, right? And so I have to ch I have to pass this down because it worked for him. He he says it worked for him, so yeah. I'm going to do the same for me. And, and for my it, it's that idea of um, old school, even for modern systems like old school Brazilian Jiu Jitsu is mm -hmm. better, was better than mm -hmm. what we have to do today. Yeah. Or, um, old school Taekwondo was better than what we have today and old school is just like let's say 20 years ago um, yeah. <laughs> yeah but that is a type of pre-modern thinking it's again mm -hmm. clinging reaching back to antiquity and antiquity could just be a few decades um and thinking that that is better somehow yep when in fact modern research, a sports science research mm -hmm. um, can contribute so much to, to martial arts, to any athletic activity, but to martial arts activities. I remember when I started Hapkido, the instructor um, had us do warm-ups and we would go into static stretches and then start bouncing. And I was, mm. oh my goodness, <laughs> <laughs> read some modern literature know, about yeah, stretching yeah. techniques. <laughs> I am I am too old to be bouncing in these these stiff static stretches. Ballistic uh, stretch like uh ballet, ballet, they do that. I I watched uh just an ex-girlfriend one time do it and I was like, oh gosh, no, no. And I was pretty flexible too. I was like, no, I'm gonna I'm gonna snap a hamstring doing that. That's yeah. Oh, I mean yeah, it's there. There's there's some good research out there that yeah, we could yeah, and I think there's a, there's a lot of great. I would say like mechanical research, like how to stretch, 
uh, yeah. bio, like uh, I know that the Kuki Wan produces a lot of biomechanical type of research on how to throw kicks and the angles and, and things like that, um, that they've at least done in the past. And that's all good stuff, but that stuff is very much, that's very well researched already. What, and a lot of people kind of come to similar conclusions through their training, even if they haven't come into that. Um, not always like with the stretching thing, but, uh, the, the, really the untapped, um, frontier for martial arts instructors is perceptual motor learning is the Mm. understanding what's going on with your senses and how that affects the way that you learn, um, for something, actually even something like forms too, but especially for sparring. And, uh, there's just no, I'm trying to put something out there. Like I'm trying to put out like a a way to understand different types of motor activities, a classification system, right? I used, uh, I think it's Gentiles classification system, trying to get people to understand the different, uh, layers of complexity to, to different, different types of, of motor, motor, uh, classes, I guess you would call them. Um, but there, 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 like you said before, there really is, there are different, um, there's different value to the different types that you practice. So with, with Pumse or with forms, um, there is, there's recent research I saw that, uh, this applies to any group coordinated sport, but it definitely applies to practicing kata with a group, which most people do, um, that, that, uh, in addition to strengthening the bond between the people that are doing it together, it, uh, strengthens your, uh, social skills, your social ability, your ability to manage social situations. And, um, even something as, as, uh, there's, I don't, I wish I'd kept track of this article. It's floating around somewhere where they actually did research on Kata where children with like um, ASD or or Asperger's or something like that or something related, even just watching and trying to follow along with an instructor with a a Kata Mm. to learn a Kata that that in addition to gains in, uh, in, uh, social their social gains because ASD often will will still yeah. struggle with with that um <clears throat> that there are gains in uh coordination that make their movements more natural because if you know anything about autism spectrum disorder as Asperger's um they uh, many of them suffer from uh, de- de- diminished motor coordination so oh. their motor they they appear sometimes to be clumsy yeah. Um, and they also tend to be very, the way they move can be awkward and strange. They, they call it stereotypical or stereo, stereotypy or something like that. And, uh, that's because those of us who grew up without ASD, uh, we are more accurately able to mirror the people around us. And so we develop more, the our demeanor tends to be more natural. The way mm. that we, uh, speak tend speak and move tends to be more um, natural and not um, stereotypical, I guess you could say. And uh, whereas a, a someone um, with, with ASD, depending on where they are on the spectrum, 
they might try to mimic that and it comes off very exaggerated and clumsy and uh, contrived. Right. And you can tell, right. Mm. So that it improves, it improves that aspect of them because there's a connection between um, your language, your motor cortex, not cortexes, but your language systems, your, your motor systems and your, your, the systems that control social interaction, they're all kind of related and, um, improvements in one can, can see some, some improvements in the other, even if in an indirect way. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of value. My mom is an occupational therapist mm-hmm. and, um, she, I was helping her put together a project recently to, uh, envision how to actually use Taekwondo therapeutically, which I know you mentioned, you wrote something about yeah. using it as, ther- as therapy. So using it, um, to rebuild, uh, your, your, your basic coordination after an injury or a a stroke or something like that, um, as a way to, as a fun way to help children struggling, like maybe with ASD or something like that, or sensory processing, help them to increase their coordination and, um, different, different attributes. All right. Just thinking back when I, I wasn't a very sporty child. Um, I, I didn't really have any interest in mm-hmm. ball sports of any kind. And yeah. in South Africa, there, are, there aren't many sports that doesn't involve a ball. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't do much sports. And then when I started doing martial arts, the forms were extremely difficult for me. Just oh, yeah. the, the basic idea of pulling and pushing, you know, yep. the, the reaction hand while punching and yep. stepping with a different leg. It was really hard. Yeah. I, it took me like, I think it's every three months that we could do a promotional test. And I still remember struggling with those first forms like mm-hmm. a week before the test. So there's yep. definitely great value in, ju- in just that building that proprioception and co- and eye foot coordination. Yeah. 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 There's an, there's an entirely different and fascinating discussion on how doing forms, uh, gives you an internal, what's called an internal focus of attention versus an external. When you spar, your, your focus of attention ought to be external. Um, And in many ways it's forced to be, but when you're doing a form, usually you're doing a form, you could do it anywhere. Hmm. And it's not usually with respect to any direction necessarily. You could start a form facing one way and do it, start it and do it from a different direction and end in in the, in a different place. Um, And that, that develops, you have to use an internal map to know how the angles to turn so that it's roughly symmetrical yeah. and, and at the proper angles that is specified for that, that inducing or form line or whatever. And um, <laughs> so that develops an internal focus of attention. They both have in terms of, of your coordination and your, your, your center of gravity and understanding where you are in space. They both have very, um, they both have their pros and cons, but they're, but crossing the wires on them. Like if you're trying to develop an mm. internal focus of attention, you're going to do really poor in sparring. Right. And if you're trying to do an external focus of attention, um, like a lot of kids, they'll learn how to 
what they'll do is they'll learn a form and they'll learn it facing a particular wall. And they can't do the form if they're not facing that wall. Yes, my, my brother and I had this experience where I, I have a really bad sense of direction and I, that was to my benefit. So I can start my <laughs> form in any direction and yeah. it would not affect me. Whereas my brother has a very strong sense of direction. And so yeah. when he practiced his forms facing a certain direction and then the exam, the grading was in a hall where he had to face a different direction, he always messed up his forms. It yeah. was a very peculiar thing. So yeah. sometimes having no sense of direction yeah. might yeah. He, he had to your benefit. I would, I, it, it sounds like he had an for memorizing the form, everything was a more of an external focus, mm. not entirely because he has to know the moves and everything, but, but you had a very internal focus of attention. You were very in tune to everything your body's doing, the angles of that. You could probably, I'm sure you could do it with your eyes closed. I, could, I yeah. used to be able to do Pumse that yeah. way. Um, some people can do it. Some people can't. Uh, and they all have downline, e either one, either one has benefits to your, 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 uh, your motor ability, but they also, they come at a cost when you, when you get into, you know, if you want to do competitive Pumse and you get up on a stage, you got to be able to recall the Pumse no matter which direction you're, you're facing. Indeed, it. Yeah. Uh, but if you're in a sparring match, you've got to have the proper focus of attention on uh, you. It can't be on you because if the focus is on you, you're more likely to make mistakes. You have to focus yeah. on what your on what your opponent's doing, opponent's doing, and really not really think of, really think about what it is you're doing. But yeah, that's a fascinating discussion that that goes into a lot of other sports psychology things like choking. But um, but so uh, yeah, one of the problems um, is that most instructors are not educated coaches. They didn't study physical yeah. education. Yeah. So they go through the process, learning whatever they did, and they get to a certain level, black belt, fourth done, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then they begin teaching. And even though governing bodies, say like the cookie one, is doing this research, it's not really disseminated down to mm -hmm. instructors. And some people, some um, organizations said, let's say like the ITF has instructors courses that's, mm -hmm. it's supposed to be mandatory. If you want to be an instructor, you have to go to these instructors courses yeah. and yeah. some of them are good, but most often they are just teaching you the system mm -hmm. and they're not really teaching you new research on, um, pedagogy, new, new ways, you know, the things yeah. you talked about, it's, yeah. it's not taught. Um, so at least there's your podcast, but yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a problem because going back a bit to the, the pre-modern idea is that when there is this master or artisan um, and apprentice relationship, there should also be skill transfer of how to teach. Mm -hmm. Now, it might not be good skills that's being transferred, good teaching skills being transferred, but mm -hmm. it's, it's built in because there's an expectation that the head instructor is kind of grooming 
the next head instructor. So there's an expectation that this person is going to be the next teacher. So we, this person should learn how to teach. And there's a period that he becomes an assistant instructor and learn the process. And um, I think that's a good thing. And that yeah. doesn't necessarily happen with, let's say, a, an athletics environment. Mm -hmm. If the martial art is simply a martial sport, um, there's hardly ever that transfer because the, the person is considered an athlete. The athletes don't teach other athletes. That's the coach's job. And that distance between being a teacher and being a practitioner is quite big. Mm -hmm. And that's a, another sad part and a negative, a con to modern martial arts mm -hmm. is that teaching skills are not necessarily embedded in the system, in the, in the transfer yeah. of yeah. knowledge. Um, whether in, but in the pre-modern systems, often it was, as, well, for a select few, the, mm -hmm. the next teachers, um, whether the teaching was good or not, I don't know, <laughs> but at least there was a, a better flow, a better system for um, yeah. a handover mm -hmm. of, from one teacher to the next teacher. Yeah, there, there's a point at which the, the master says, all right, here's how you teach. Here's the methods. Here's the organization of the mm -hmm. methods, if there's an organization. Yeah. Um, and with, you know, when you move from, athlete to coach in a more of a combat sports situation, the athlete becoming a coach will just emulate their, whatever they, whatever their coach. Mm -hmm. And they, and sometimes they don't understand why their coach did something. So they're, they're actually emulating it either without an understanding or with, with a, almost a reinterpretation of why it is the coach did this particular method, he might not even know why. So that changes when he uses the method, how often he uses the method. Um, and there's I, I usually a, no extra research that goes into coaching after that. <laughs> indeed. I have a funny anecdote about how traditions just continue. When I started Hapkido um, in the Dojang, part of our warm up would be to run laps around mm. the inside of the Dojang. And we used to run, oh, I forgot the number. I think it was 12 or 15 laps. And later on, I asked them, some of the other seniors, I asked them, so why are we doing this? And why specifically this number? Why not 10? Why is it 12 laps? And most of them didn't know. They just always did it. And then finally, one guy told me, well, in the previous the, the instructor moved locations and in the previous gym, they measured out how long, I think it was like a two kilometer run would be. So how many laps two kilometers would be. Mm -hmm. And that's why they did it. And then they moved to this new gym. They never measured the floor um, area and they just kept on doing the same repetition of laps. <laughs> it was this weird thing. And I'm sure some instructors later on would still do that 12 laps and have no idea why exactly it was 12. Yeah. It was really funny. 
Yeah, that's funny. That's exactly that's and that's off, that's often how it works. They just do a warm up or do an exercise. Like, well, that's kind of just what my coach did. So it's it's yeah. part of the it's part of the the recipe. Just, yeah. just trust the recipe. <laughs> Well, it's, uh, dude, this has been a really, really awesome discussion, but, um, I got to actually get some work done today. So <laughs> well, I guess I need to get ready for bed. It's yeah. I'm sure it's getting, it's getting late <laughs> over there. Oh man. But, uh, thank you for coming on. Where, where can my audience find you if they want to check up on your work? Mm, good question. So I have a website, which is not, Hasn't been updated recently, but it's Sonku Lewis, my name, S-A-N-K-O-L-E-W-I-S.com. Mm-hmm. And then I have a blog, martial arts blog. Um, if they search for Sushim Kwan, mm-hmm. that's S-O-O-S-H-I-M-K-W-A-N. Um, it's a blog spot um, blog, but if they just search for Sushim Kwan on Google, they will probably find many different avenues where I am. And then if people search my name, Sankulus, they can probably see some academic articles as well. Awesome. Sweet. Yeah. I'll also link that in the uh, the show notes. So if you guys didn't catch that, you can just take a, a look at the show notes and, and catch a link there. But uh, thank you for coming on. Uh, I'll go ahead and thank let you, you get, get ready fun. for bed. And I hope we can do this again, actually, sometime. It sounds fun. Yeah. All right. Have a good Bye. day. You too. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Combat Learning Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or your podcatcher of choice. It really helps us out. Finally, this episode, including the intro music, is produced by Micah Peacock. Thanks in advance, and I'll see you on the next episode.